it kind of changed my viewpoint because my life I, I was kind of tragic in a way you know it was it was the 70s and and my dad was an alcoholic and there was a lot of drama and there was you know just a lot of chaos and and this song this record actually was just kind of a, a source of solace I would I would go and you know my dad had built this bookshelf with stereo in it and I'd just go sit there with my headphones on and listen to music for hours this is essential tremors I'm Lee Gardner I'm Matt Byers the idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are we're not looking for favorite songs necessarily we're also not looking for songs that they choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island what we're looking for are songs that have significance to them songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general This episode's guest, Mimi Parker, is the co-founder, co-singer, and drummer for the band Low, whose new album, Double Negative, has just been released to great acclaim. Low has been a prominent voice in American underground music for almost 25 years, beginning with their 1994 debut, I Could Live in Hope, which established the precedent that a band could be both whisper-quiet, gentle, and slow-paced, flying in the face of what was in vogue in indie rock at the time, but also powerful in this understated way. Twelve albums later, the Duluth, Minnesota-based band has continued in this same vein, but has pushed the boundaries subtly outwards with each new release, finding new ways to redefine their initial idea of hushed intimacy into something richer, more frictious, and more complex. The first song Parker chose as being essential to her was the title track to Linda Ronstadt's 1974 album, Heart Like a Wheel. this record I think it came out in I don't know I don't know mid 70s somewhere I was I was pretty young but you know we played we played this record all the time and um, the title track of the the record is heart like a wheel I guess I don't know it just 
it just really um, struck me because it's really a tragic, beautiful song. And I guess um, that kind of, it kind of changed my viewpoint because my life I, I was kind of tragic in a way. You know, it was, it was the 70s and and my dad was an alcoholic and there was a lot of drama and there was, you know, just a lot of chaos and and this song this record actually was just kind of a, a source of solace. I would I would go and you know, my dad had built this bookshelf with stereo in it and I'd just go sit there with my headphones on and listen to music for hours. And I mean, I really, I really feel fortunate that my parents had a love for music, and they bought, and they bought a lot of music. And um, so, yeah, this song, in particularly, in particular, this record was beautiful and tragic. Linda Ronstadt is an amazing singer. None of these were her songs, but yet she kind of ad- adopted them and, and made them her own. And yeah, it was just really. Um, it fit perfectly with what was going on with me. You know, I mean, people listen to music for all sorts of reasons, you know, many of us all throughout our lives and sometimes with pretty deep connections. But what means more to you than when you're a kid and you find something that feels like yours, that it's speaking to you? Um, you, You just don't get that kind of thing, I don't think, you know, in in other circumstances, when you're older. No, I you're right, and I actually I still um, go back to these songs. That one, you know, I I still go back to that song, and it still it brings me back to kind of a melancholy, familiar place. And even though it is kind of it's melancholy and kind of sad, it, it is familiar, and it it's it's comforting, you know. But yeah, I, I feel really, I feel really blessed that I had, that I had music, and my mom was, my mom was um, an aspiring country singer, so she had taught herself how to play guitar, accordion, and piano, and it just music was really important to her. And when my when my parents were married, she actually convinced my dad to start singing with her. You know, and he he would they would sing together while she would play the guitar, and yeah, and they would listen to mostly old country, you know, old country from the seventies, and yeah, it was it was a very unique unique time I think for music. Also, it's interesting to hear Linda Ronstadt come up because she was such a huge star at that time, and and really did have. You know, it wasn't just, uh, you know, I don't know how to say this, empty stardom. I mean, people really connected with her a lot. And I don't think people, you know, I don't think she has that much of a, a reputation. I don't think that, that people think of her in the same way that they, they might have at some time. She's a little bit forgotten. And I realize she's still, you know, maybe not lately, but she still makes music or she made music up to a certain point. Yeah, you're right. She was... um yeah, just I mean she won I think she won a lot of Grammys for this record. But she was definitely not um as can't think of the word, 
not really flamboyant, but she was just very, she was kind of a subtle artist, you know, just kind of uh, made her presence known in kind of an underscored way, I guess. Were you already singing yourself at this point? Um, maybe not at this point. I was, well, I take it back. I think I was, because my sister was also um, a guitar player, and I started out singing, really was singing with her. She would she would do all the leads, and I would just harmonize to her. And we would just sing out of songbooks that we had. Uh, we would sing, you know, a lot of John Denver songs, uh, some Neil Young. And eventually I, you know, picked up the guitar and started um, doing it myself, you know, singing it, just plunking out the chords and singing it. But yeah, um, it was shortly after this record came out, for sure. Because I see now it came out in 74. I was still pretty young then, so a couple of years I was probably singing on my own. The second song chosen by Parker is R.E.M.'s Driver 8. Well, when I was when I was younger, I would listen to the music that my parents had bought. My sisters would buy a lot of records too, anywhere from or anything from like Journey to Nazareth to Rex Smith, kind of this poppy pop. Actually, I think he might have been a soap opera star first. But anyway, and then I, you know, I just started to want to listen to different things and. Um, I started to listen to bands like Husker Du, and actually, I have my best friend in high school um, knew that I liked different music, you know, weird music, she called it. One time she went to Moorhead, Minnesota to visit her cousin, and she came back with um, that Husker Du record. I can't remember which one it was. And she said to me, yeah, my cousin's or I told my cousins that you liked weird music, so they told me I should give you this. So, you know, it was, it was really great. People were starting to add to my collection. And anyway, so when I, between my um, junior and senior year, I went to live with my sister for the summer. And one of the radio stations was actually a classic rock station, and they're still around today. But for some reason, they were playing um, this R.E.M. song. I think the first thing, the first single was, I'm just going to look at the record here because I can't remember. But I think actually the first single was um, Life and How to Live It. Anyway, so for some reason, this classic rock station was playing R.E.M. And it was like, holy crap. This is really great. So I ran out and I bought the record 
brought it home, started listening to it all the time. Um, and I guess, I don't know, that the song, Driver 8, was just really, it was just powerful. You know, it was, I feel like those guys were kind of coming in to their own. And actually, there are a lot of songs on here. Kind of Wendell G. kind of brought me back to kind of my country-ish type roots that I had. But it really inspired me to um, to seek out new music. And actually, what <laughs> after I got home, I um, figured out that if I unplugged the antenna from the TV and plugged it into the radio, and my dad had rigged this TV antenna that it was on a motor, so you could push a button in, and it would go, it would just turn around. And I could see, I, I found the radio station by adjusting the antenna, and I could listen to that song and whatever else those guys decided to play on the classic rock station. Did uh, this exploration uh, continue from there? I mean, was the, it sounds like this was kind of the start of it. Yeah, it did. I mean, I would listen to, like, you know, whatever I could find. There was a radio, there was a, a record store in um, the town that was about 35, 40 miles away, and this guy had kind of a, you know, a unique ear, and he would, he would find stuff, and he would recommend it to Alan, actually, at the time, because Alan and I have known each other since high school, um, and he would bring it home, you know, or he would bring it back to his house, and then we would listen to it, you know, and, and it, yeah, and, and it just, yeah, it really started my my journey into music. I mean, I was listening to, you know, Violent Femmes and, the, you know, The Cult. I mean, really kind of different stuff. I wasn't sticking, you know, to any certain sound or anything. Um, yeah, so it just can, you know, it just continued and I would buy records and sit in my room. At this point, I had convinced my parents that I should have the stereo in my room. So I got to move the stereo up from the living room into my room. So that really made just a pretty great hideaway, you know. When things got noisy and rambunctious downstairs, I would just go upstairs and turn on the stereo and <laughs> kind of escape, I guess. Were you um, doing music at this point? No, not really. My sister had moved out of the house, and my mom wasn't really... So I wasn't really playing music. I was just listening. You know, a couple of the guests that we've talked to um, talk about, especially sort of that, that teenage period of life where, you know, you're into things maybe that, you know, the, most of the rest of the people in your class aren't into, and, and you know, that can mean a lot, Um uh, you know, depending on on what your situation is, what did you feel like uh, that? You know, did you know a lot of people who were who were into the kind of music you were, or not so many? No, not really anybody. Like I said, Alan. Eventually, we you know became friends and this and that, and we kind of connected on music for sure. But no, none of my friends listened to anything other than what was you know what was on top forty and was on the radio so yeah so I felt a little you know I guess I I suppose I felt a little strange maybe but probably a little special like you know I had a special secret that nobody else knew about <laughs> we can't reach our destiny. 
final song chosen by Parker as being formative to her was Galaxy 500's Blue Thunder. Before we before we started the band, um, actually our second bass player Zach brought. We were we were friends at the time. He was still he was still young and in high school. But Alan and him were kind of doing some music together. Anyway, he he brought us some Galaxy 500 stuff and just said, "Hey, you know, you should listen to this stuff. It's really great." So you know, immediately immediately I we were attracted to it and um, this song this song in particular you know I mean the, the vocals were the vocals were just I don't know I guess it was kind of like a, it was really a simple melody um, but it was kind of fragile you know and but yeah powerful at the same time and and i guess it just really yeah just i don't know the whole record actually on it's on on fire the whole record is just really amazing and then so i think we bought all of the ones that we could find this one um on fire came out i think in like 89 or something like that and i think the band broke up the next year um, but, I mean, it really, you know, had a huge impact on our career, to tell you the truth, because Kramer was one of, um, Kramer, who produced produced Galaxy 500, was one of the seven or eight people that we ended up sending a demo tape to. And it was, you know, just a cassette tape that we had, like three or four songs. Um, we sent it out to him, and... Just, you know, to our surprise, he actually wrote back and invited us to come out and, and record at his studio in, in New Jersey. Um, so, you know, I guess you could say it kind of launched our, you know, our career in a way. I mean, it was really inspiring. We really loved, you know, his production. And, I mean, we didn't know. We were just really ignorant and naive. And, you know, we... We're just just sending it out there, hoping that, you know, not knowing what it would even mean. What if somebody did like it? What did that mean? You know, but, you know, just like I said, he he wrote back and invited us to come out. We, um, we had a bass player at the time was just this young kid, a 17-year-old kid still in high school, and his best friend convinced his mom to let us borrow her car. And we drove in this car out to Jersey. We got to Kramer's door, um, knocked on the door. He came out and said, literally, you're early. Come back in two hours. So here we, here we are. <laughs> you know, kind of hit kids from Minnesota. Uh, we get into the car and find this place that sells bagels, which are, you know, the most amazing bagels we ever had. They're out of New Jersey. And we, you know, eventually get back to Kramer's and record our first record. That's 
um, you know, and I know that you've told that story before, but that's a, a, a shockingly um, quick um, success story, I have to say. I mean, I realize it took a while. But. Well, honestly, it's ridic- it was ridiculously quick. I mean, we started the band in like April, I think it was April of 93, and by September we were out there and we recorded half of the record in the first trip and the second half. On a second trip, we were, we, he'd set up, Kramer had set up a show for us, um, the Knitting Factory, which, so the Knitting Factory was like our third or fourth show that we'd ever had. And we were flying around, you know, Manhattan in his convertible. Um, he took us to, um, a movie in the city, which was like $10. And I was thinking to myself, holy crap, $10 to see a movie? It was only like $3.50 in Duluth. And just as a point of reference, movies are now just $10 in Duluth. So it's taken like 25 years for Duluth movie prices to get to the same as uh, New York prices. <laughs> just kind of funny little facts. You know, um, people always uh, that well. There's that that quote about the Velvet Underground. Um, I think people say Brian Eno said it. I'm not sure if he actually did. That um, you know they didn't sell many records, but everyone who bought one went out and started a band. And I think that I think that um, that Galaxy 500. Maybe they can't claim that, but they did seem to have an outsized influence on a bunch of bands and you know hearing you talk about this and and especially the the that fragile quality that sort of you know almost naked quality um in in the vocal on that track um really it's like not that that's what low sounds like but i can see what you've done you know over the course of your career um I can I can hear that uh, uh, still. Yeah, no, I agree. I think they really had a huge impact on a certain um, spectrum of the population. <laughs> and, yeah, and it can still be. I think a lot of things can be traced back to those guys. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.